Hello. We're exactly halfway through a year that nobody could have predicted and nobody did, aren't we? But here's a thought. What if the second half of this year has even bigger news than the first half of this year? What if the second half, in the second half of this year there's a news item that's so enormous and so huge it swamps out the news that we've had the first half of this year? Well, that's impossible, you would say. No news could be bigger than what we've had. But hang about, just think about this. Not that long ago, we had a new president in the US, a new leader of the free world. And uh, everybody said, that's just incredible. That's just, he, he, he dominates the news in a way that nobody else could with his comments, with the, with the things that he's done. And we all said, wow, no news can be bigger than that. What news could be bigger than that? How little we knew. Because then Brexit took over in a way nobody predicted. And suddenly that drowned out the news of Trump for three and a half years until by December 2019, we were all fed up to the back teeth, weren't we? We were on the edge of despair with Brexit news. We just had so much of it. And those of us, even those of us who are Remainers, by the time this January came around, we were just keen to get out of the EU to stop the news. Wow, we thought. No news could be bigger than that. How little we knew. Because then in February 2020, a new news item started to appear of this tiny virus in the Far East. One news item which since then has eclipsed everything else. Wow, no news item could be bigger than that, right? Well, if there's one lesson, apart from stop saying, wow, no news item could be bigger than that, it's this. Don't assume ever that we are at the pinnacle of news. Don't assume that there's no bigger news that could take over our agendas, our headlines, our bandwidth in our heads, our newspapers. Don't assume that nothing bigger will happen because it just might. We don't know what will happen in the second half of this year. And it's into this world where one disaster seems to overtake the next, where one calamity eclipses the previous one. It's into this volatile world that the New Testament was written. It was exactly in a world like this that the New Testament was written. See, the world of the first century was volatile. It was changeable. There were tyrannical and incompetent leaders then. There was... There were armies taking over, making and breaking empires then. And there was disease, famine, viruses and pestilence then. There was persecution. There were all kinds of things going on. In fact, I would say, in terms of sheer uncertainty and volatility, the way we find ourselves now, the world we're living in now, the times we're living in now are closer to New Testament times, possibly, than any other times we have lived in. I'll say that again. In terms of uncertainty and volatility, the times we are living in now are possibly closer to New Testament times than any other times that we've lived in. And so it's precisely the New Testament that can direct us of how to live in such troubling times, or it should be, shouldn't it? And so as we enter the final chapter of this book on Hebrews, it's fair and reasonable to ask this question. How are we supposed to live in such volatile, changeable, unstable times? How are we supposed to live in these times? And it's reasonable to expect an answer. And so we come to this final chapter of this book, Hebrews chapter 13. This chapter, as we'll find out, is a cameo, a mosaic, a guidance for Christian living, with one instruction after another. 
We'll read some of it tonight and we'll talk about it and then we'll step back and take a high level view of this whole book just to remind ourselves what it's been about. So if you've missed the previous 12 sermons or you've forgotten them and that's quite natural, don't worry about that. Don't worry because tonight we're going to have a little summary, an overview of what this book is about. A kind of uh, five things to see if you visit Hebrews. Hebrews highlights. We'll do that before we end. But first of all, let me read this to you. It's Hebrews chapter 13 and it's verses 1 to 8 and you'll see it on screen. So the writer says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as, mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can me immortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so, Lord, as we come to this final chapter of this book, Lord, we come with expectation uh, that you would speak relevantly and poignantly into the situations that we find ourselves in today, at home, at work, on our street, in our, in our nation and in our, and in our world, Lord. We look for what you would have to say to us at this time and we look expectantly and we listen for what you would say to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. So in fact, I only read the first part of this chapter. This chapter has many specific instructions and uh, three of them occur in just the first three verses. And we'll look at those. Love one another, show hospitality to strangers, remember those in prison and suffering abuse. There are many more. It's a long list. But in fact, if you look at the list of instructions in, in Hebrews 13, none of these are new. Uh, the New Testament resounds with these instructions. And in fact, so does the Old Testament. The Old Testament also spoke about loving one another, about showing hospitality to strangers. Uh, so, for example, um, the, uh, the Tanakh, the, uh, the, the, what they now call the Torah, from which our Old Testament is derived, had a lot of these commands built into it. And that's significant for this audience, because if you remember, this audience that the letter was written to, the Hebrews... They are Jews converting to Christianity. So they're people who knew the Old Testament and the books of Moses. So tonight, let's just look at the first three verses and then we'll take a, a step back. So the first verse, number one, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Well, that brothers and sisters in Christ should love one another is hardly a new commandment, is it? We've had that throughout the New Testament. So, for example, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 13, people will know that you're my disciples because of this, 
that you love one another. People will know you're my disciples because you love one another. Not because you're great evangelists or great speakers or you have spiritual gifts or even that you pray and read the Bible, which are all good. No, people will know that you're my followers because you love each other within the church, within the believers. Uh, Matthew 22, Jesus reminds us again when somebody asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, first of all, love God. Secondly, love your neighbour as you love yourself. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. And if we're left in any doubt from the New Testament about the importance of love for each other, we could just look at that poetic and beautiful chapter uh, that Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, couldn't we? Which tells us about love and how to love. So Paul says, I may speak in the languages of men or of angels. I may speak in tongues. But if I don't have love, I might as well be a noisy gong or a clanging bell. He says, I may have the gift of prophecy. I may be able to fathom all mysteries. I may have the faith to move a mountain. But if I have not love, I am nothing. In other words, don't bother going around speaking in tongues if you don't have love. It's pointless. Don't bother. Don't come to me with your gift of prophecy, with your ability to fathom mysteries or even your faith. Because if you haven't got love, it's nothing. And then Paul tells us as well what that love is. It's not a fuzzy feeling in my, in, in my belly. It's, it's choosing to do. It's choosing how to behave. So Paul then says, love is patience. Love is kindness. Love is not being envious, not being boastful. Love is not keeping a record of other people's wrongs that they've done to us. So the New Testament makes it clear throughout, before this letter to the Hebrews, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, that love is not a feeling. Love is what you choose to do. Love is not an emotion, but love is meeting one another's needs. And firstly, this verse says, firstly, it's within the community of believers. It's within the church. So there's one uh, lady in our church who's elderly and she suffers from considerable memory loss. And she struggles with lots of things day to day. And there's another gentleman who's not much younger, but he has chosen to ring her up every single day. Pretty much every day he rings her up for almost an hour sometimes and chats to her. And then on a Sunday morning, because she doesn't have the capability to join our Sunday live stream on YouTube, he joins the live stream on YouTube and then he gets the live stream, he gets his landline and plays the live stream down the phone so that she can hear it. But not only that, there's another couple in that street who are looking after this gentleman because he doesn't have a car, sometimes struggles to get out and get his shopping. So they do his shopping for him. So the one who is showing love is being shown love. That's loving one another. That's what this is about. That Jesus says, this is how people will know you're my disciples, that you have loved one for another. In the darkness of post-Brexit, in the chaos of COVID, love between believers must shine brightly. Second verse. Be ready with a meal or a bed when it's needed, says the writer. Why some have extended hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Be ready with a meal or a bed some have extended hospitality to angels without ever knowing it. Hospitality is one of the key, key uh, themes across scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Some people are surprised when I say that hospitality is a key theme of the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament. Even back in the Old Testament, sharing and looking after each other was central. The Old Testament law in Leviticus said, treat the stranger as one of your own. Treat the alien, the one who comes in, like one of your own, because you also were strangers. 
And uh, Jesus takes this up when he talks about hospitality. He says in Luke 14, when you have a meal, invite people who can't invite you back. Don't just invite the people who are your friends. Invite people who can't invite you back. Or in Titus chapter 1 verse 8, where there's a list of uh, qualifications for a church leader. Church leaders must be like this and this and this and this. And the verse says church leaders must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. They must be self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. And we tend to think about the last few words there about our church leaders. They should be upright and holy and disciplined. But we ignore the first point, which is made first, which is they must be hospitable. When was the last time you thought about hospitality when you elected a leader onto your PCC or standing committee or eldership? When did you last think, are they hospitable? That's what this verse says we should be looking at. Uh, and that, that theme resounds as well in Matthew 25, that which we've spoken about before, where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. He says to the sheep, you gave me a drink, you clothed me, you visited me in prison. And they say, when did we do that? And Jesus says, when you did it for the least of these. Being ready with a, with a meal or a bed when it's needed. But, you say, <clears throat> that's all right, Chris, but how can we do that in COVID times? How can I invite people for a meal? Well, it's a bit different, isn't it, at this moment? But a couple of things. When you, when you do go back to work, when you do get back into the office or wherever it is you go, will you be one who has a coffee with people? Will you be one who is ready to have a, a chat around the water cooler, the water fountain? Or are you the one who rushes into work frantically and rushes out at the end frantically and just gets your job done in between. But even in COVID times, hospitality works. It just looks different. It looks different. Hospitality, here's an example of hospitality right now, down the road a few miles from here, in a place called Partington. Have a look at this. I wonder, you know, on that video where... They took the food parcels to people's homes. And I wonder if the person opening one of those doors, if that frail, elderly, vulnerable person, if one day the person who brought the parcel will be told, that was an angel. That was an angel and you didn't even know it. I hope so. I hope so. That would be wonderful. Even if we can't get involved in such projects ourselves, like Partington Hideaway, we can support them, can't we? We can find ways to do that. And then thirdly, the third verse at the start of this chapter says, regard prisoners as if you were in prison with them. Look on victims of abuse as if what happened to them happened to you. Right? The NIV, that's the message. The NIV text is very similar. If you notice in this, in this verse, it's not just about helping. It's about empathising. It's about imagining yourself in that situation. It's about stepping into their shoes I read it again. Regard prisoners as if you were in prison with them. Look on victims of abuse as if what happened to them had happened to you. Now, <clears throat> it's not always easy, is it, to have empathy for people who are, who are in a completely different situation to us. It's not easy, is it? These last few weeks, our screens, our, our news has been filled uh, with this big story of racism around the world. We've seen TV coverage, we've seen headlines... Uh, of, of racism in institutions, in organisations, uh, racism that we have yet to discover within, within ourselves, perhaps. Now, 
How do you put yourself in their shoes? How do you put yourself in the shoes of a black person who's always suffered racism if you're a white person in a middle-class bubble? On the 4th of April, 1968, Baptist minister and civil rights campaigner Martin Luther King was shot dead in the USA. On the 5th of April, the next day, the very next day, a young school teacher in Iowa called Jane Elliott began teaching her class that day. It was a class of 28 white eight-year-olds. And she thought to herself, we can't just ignore what's happened. How can I get my children not only to hear the news, but to empathise with what's going on in our country right now? So she actually had an idea. She put to, side, she put to one side her lesson that she had for the day. And she said, children... We've just received information from the government and it's new information that we didn't know before that basically your uh, eye colour and your hair colour is based on a chemical called melanin, M-E-L-A-N-I-N. She wrote it on the board, melanin. And then she said, and she's making it up, then she said, this melanin that also causes dark eyes and dark hair causes intelligence. It makes you more intelligent. So she basically said, basically, people with brown eyes, children with brown eyes, are smarter than children with blue eyes. Which was a surprise for the children. And she said, now we're going to organise our class in that way. So first thing she did, she put all the kids with the brown eyes at the front so they could hear better and interact and take part, whilst the blue-eyed children were sent to the back. Because, she said, the brown-eyed children are the smart ones. They get things right. They, they're the helpful ones. The blue-eyed kids, they just mess things up. And she and it didn't take long for the uh, the, the morning break and the, and the lunchtime for the brown-eyed kids to start making fun of the blue-eyed kids. And she even allowed rules, like one of the children said, "Oh, don't have uh, uh, don't make sure you don't use a cup from the water fountain that a blue-eyed child has used." Why said another child? Because you could catch something from a bluey. All the insults that were being applied to black people, or some of those insults outside, were brought into the classroom in a new way. And during that one day, withdrawn, brown-eyed kids who were normally very quiet, kept themselves to themselves, became outgoing. They were suddenly beaming with confidence. Whereas the blue-eyed children started acting as though they were inferior they started getting things wrong. Apparently one of the kids in the class, who was probably the smartest girl in class with blue eyes, she started getting her multiplication tables wrong, which she'd never done before because she felt she was inferior. Now you can look up that, ex that exercise of Jane Elliott on, on the web. It was a very controversial lesson. You would not be allowed to do that today. I think to some extent that's a shame because every one of those 28 children who were still around for them, that was a profound and lifelong learning experience that they couldn't have had from a book. So stepping back to this verse, this verse calls us to relate to those who suffer, to use our imagination. Let me read it one more time. Regard prisoners as if you were in prison with them. Look on victims of abuse as if what, had happened, what happened to them had happened to you. And so we can use our imagination, can't we? It's not easy, but for example, how would I feel... You can ask yourself this question. How would I feel if it was my son, my daughter, or my mum or dad that was being discriminated against? And what if it was just for something that they couldn't help, like they were left-handed, or they had blue eyes, 
or they had some mannerism that they couldn't help. Empathy hurts, but sometimes it's what we're called to do. Okay, so let's just step away from this now. We've just had three verses. Love to other believers, hospitality to strangers, empathy with those who suffer. Not uh, new, not revelatory, but these themes repeat across scripture. Why? Because God cares that we live authentic Christian lives. God wants our hearts to be right, to be softened, to be more like his in this world where one news item overtakes another, whatever the news will be in the next six months. This chapter goes on. If you read it further, it says the marriage bed must be kept sacred. Uh, It talks about the importance of not falling in love with money because in the authentic Christian life, your bed and your bank account cannot be separated from your Bible. Talks about the need to imitate leaders. Authentic Christian lives do not have a divide between this is how I behave when I'm with other Christians or in church and this is how I behave the rest of my life when God's not looking. A sacred secular divide. Authentic Christian lives don't have the sacred secular divide. So I'm going to just step away now. We're, We're nearly back. We're nearly home. We've been on a journey through Hebrews. We, we are coming in to land. We can see the runway lights below us. The landing gear is down. What can we say in summary of this complex book? Well, like many New Testament letters, the teaching in this book falls into two halves or two parts. There's the theology and the practice, um, the belief and the behaviour. And the theology of this book, which is pretty much chapters 1 to 10, can actually be summarised in, in one line. This book, the theology of this book, is all about the supremacy, the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus as Messiah, as the Jewish Messiah. Jesus, says the writer, is greater than anything you believed before. And remember, remember these are people who had the Old Testament. They believed the Old Testament. So it was written to, to Jews who just started to accept Jesus. And the writer spends a lot of time explaining how Jesus is greater than the revelations from the Old Testament. He's greater than the prophets, chapters 1 and 2. He's greater than Moses, I think that's chapter 4. He's greater than, uh, in fact, chapter 4, he says, uh, greater than priests, Old Testament priests. And it says in chapter 4, we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathise anymore. We have a high priest who was, who was tempted in every way as, as us. So this talk of high priests, again, it's saying he, this Jesus is greater than the high priests that you read about, chapters 1 to 10, that you know about in the Old Testament. A lot of ink is spent on this one topic, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The writer is always comparing Jesus to the past, to what was before, because that's what these people knew. And so of the theology of Jesus, the writer can say, and he says, doesn't he, these these, um, wonderful, often quoted verses from Hebrews about Jesus. So chapter 1, verse 1, the writer says to this audience who know the Old Testament, he says, in the past... God spoke to our fathers through the prophets uh, many times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son, who he, created heir, who, he, who, he, who he made heir of all things and through whom he created the universe. So in the past, God spoke to our fathers. That's what you knew before. But this is Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is presented as the complete revelation of God in Hebrews. 
the supreme and sufficient, the full and final revelation of God. And then later on, I think chapter 12, the writer talks about Jesus being the author and perfecter of our faith. Why does he use that word perfecter? Because these people already understood faith. They already believed in Yahweh, the Old Testament God. And so the writer is saying, here is now the perfection of what you already believe. He's called Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Fulfilling completely the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament, replacing the Old Covenant by the New. And then in this chapter, in the last verse that we read, Jesus, he says, is the same yesterday and today and forever, who was and is and is to come. The God you believed in, it's the same. It's Jesus, and he'll be the same tomorrow. So that's the teaching of this book, in a, in a very small nutshell, the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. And then, in the final chapters, is the so what? So what if Jesus is all of that? So what if I believe that? What if we accept all those things and you admired all those men and women of faith in chapter 11? So what? Well, says the writer in 12 and 13, chapters 12 and 13, this is what your life should start to look like. This is how it should start to show. And so we have the arguments of faith from chapters 1 to 10, and the working out of faith in chapters 11 to 13, in a nutshell. And as I said in chapter 13, if you just take this for authentic Christian living, this will be enough. Love to other believers, hospitality to strangers, empathy with those who suffer. Love for other believers, hospitality for strangers, empathy for those who suffer. And so in closing, and in closing this book and this series... We do approach another half year of events as if uh, Trump, Brexit and Covid were not enough. We don't know what, what news, what will happen in the next six months. We don't know what will come. But here in the New Testament and even on this single page is a guide to authentic Christian living in troubling times. A guide to authentic Christian living in perplexing times. Because the New Testament was written in such times and for such times. Very much so. Authentic Christian lives will show in our behaviour. And it doesn't matter what news there might be. It doesn't matter that there might be an even bigger news headline next week or next month. And in fact, I would go further and actually say authentic Christian living is the purpose of life. It's the purpose of life. God is forming us, shaping us for eternity. God is always forming us, refining our character and making us more and more like Jesus. Why is that? Why is that? Why is God always teaching us to live in a Christ-like manner, always encouraging us to do that? Why is he always making us more, more like him through what we believe and what we do? It's because he's forming us, shaping us for eternity, for a life with him. That's the purpose of, of life. Little by little, as we become more like Jesus, as little by little we approach Jesus. Little by little we become more like Jesus and little by little we approach the presence of Jesus. So whatever news the second half of this year brings, we can rest in that truth that we are being formed for eternity day by day. Sometimes it feels like a step forward and two steps back, doesn't it? Sometimes with our behaviour, we mess up, we get things wrong. That's okay. Even that is education, is forming and shaping us. So that we can be more like Jesus. This Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, 
this Jesus who is the author and perfecter of your faith and mine, and this Jesus who is the same yesterday and today and forever, who was and is and is to come. And so let me end today uh, just with a benediction prayer for you, an exhortation which is taken from Hebrews 10, uh, verse 23. So the writer says, and I say to you, and so... In closing, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us continue to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing, but instead let's encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching.